The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. This is a special edition. It's not our question-answer format for viewers' questions. I wanted to address an issue tonight that uh, is kind of an ongoing controversy and can be rather confusing even to modified traditional Catholics. Uh, the controversy over the question of baptism of desire uh, continues to rage on in certain uh, confused quarters, and so I wanted to address uh, the controversy and actually look at one of the stumbling blocks that is often put in front of unsuspecting traditional Catholics to trip them up on the on the question of baptism of desire. But uh, to begin with, let me just mention that uh, oh, several years ago or more, uh, some personages uh, I've been uh, suggested it's been suggested to me. I just refer to them as the Brothers Grimm. Um, uh, actually, went uh, online and produced a video program in which they um, basically uh, resorted to name calling. Um, they um, uh, found their arguments themselves so weak that they had to resort to the, uh, the uh, resort to ad hominem, a simple name calling. I understand that uh, they even called me a moron in the process, and uh, which is fine with me actually. Uh, actually, I consider that rather complimentary. Um, but uh, it, that even even that I think says more about the brothers Grimm than it is about myself. Generally, one resorts to name-calling when his arguments are lacking, and he knows it. Or when he doesn't have arguments, and he knows it, so resorts to name-calling. In any case, I would consider it to be uh, preferable to be an honest moron than a dishonest a genius, a dishonest genius. And I think we're not dealing with genius in the two of them, uh, the Brothers Grimm, but we are dealing, I believe, with a sincere lack of honesty. Uh, a great deal of uh, audacity and honesty because they claim that they and they alone have the uh, the true perspective uh, on what true Catholicism is, is even as Martin Luther said that he and he alone apparently at the time understood what true Christianity was. So uh, I thought it'd be a good idea to uh, revisit the issue for those who are interested and I presume there are still many who are a little puzzled about it. As I say, because there are certain tripping points along the way that they might not have been able to reconcile with uh, what they understand to be Catholic teaching. Now, as I mentioned to you before, the Council of Trent called for the preparation, the publication of a catechism. And the catechism was to be for her clergy, the Catholic clergy. It was Pope Pius V, St. Pius V, who actually carried out that command of the Council of Trent. 
And uh, the result of his work we now know as the Roman Catechism, or the Catechism of the Council of Trent. The very first edition appeared in the very first year of the reign of St. Pius V and, and under his authority. I have uh, photocopies from that first edition of the Catechism of the Council of Trent. And uh, when, when one examines the text of the original Catechism of the Council of Trent, it speaks very clearly about what we would consider to be, uh, what we understand to be the baptism of desire. <clears throat> In fact, there are some even uh, modern translations that are quite accurate, that are very true to the Latin, and I'll read the Latin for you, but allow me to read the English translation first, because it is, it is, quite, it is quite representative and, and accurate and precise in conveying the, the wording and the meaning of the Latin text. Uh, this is from the Catechism of the Council of Trent, the section on the baptism of adults. And this is what it says. <clears throat> on adults, however, the church has not been accustomed to confer the sacrament of baptism at once, but has ordained that it be deferred for a certain time. The delay is not attended with the same danger as in the case of infants, which we have already mentioned. Should any unforeseen accident make it impossible for adults to be washed in the salutary waters, their intention and determination to receive baptism and their repentance for past sins will avail them to grace and righteousness. Now the idea that they will be held righteous or justified in the eyes of God, they'll also, uh, it will also avail them to grace. And here we refer to sanctifying grace. So the, the text of the Catechism of the Council of Trent uh, is, I believe, indisputable as to what it's saying here, that if an adult who is a catechumen and declares his intention to receive the, the sacrament of baptism, if he dies um, and is unable to receive the waters of the sacrament, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, that is the Church speaking through the Catechism of the Council of Trent, says that their intention and determination to receive baptism, the sacrament, and their repentance for past sins will avail them. It doesn't say might or could or should. It says will avail them to grace and righteousness. And this is the reason why the Council of Trent says, the Catechism of the Council of Trent says, adults who are converting to the Catholic faith are not rushed to the baptismal font. The urgency of baptizing infants is there, clearly, because they cannot make an act of faith, an act of faith, an act of hope, and an act of charity. They cannot be repentant for original sin, uh, certainly, in their souls. And uh, But an adult can. And this is exactly what the Council is referring to in its catechism. Now, the Latin of this, and, and the Latin actually at that time was written in the old type, so it's a little bit difficult to read, and uh, it takes a little bit of uh, slowly examining here, <clears throat> because the letters are the old type, as I say. But here's what it says in Latin. Sed quam vis hec ita sint, non quens consuevit tamen ecclesia, 
baptismi sacramentum huic homium generi statim tribuere, serad certum tempus differendum esse constituit, neque enim ea dilatio periculum, quod quidem pueris iminere supra dictum est, coniunctum habet cumilis, qui rationis usu crediti sunt. Baptismi succipiendi propositum arque concilium, et male acte vitae penitentia satis futura fit ad gratiam et justitiam. And a contendius si repentinus aliquis casus impediat, quo minus salutari aqua ablui posint. And uh, actually that is continued here. So in any case, I wanted to mention to you that uh, the Catechism of the Council of Trent account is very clear with regard to the baptism of adults and the church's practice, common practice of waking, for the adult, well, for among other things, to show their sincerity. In fact, the Council of Trent Catechism continues, Nay, this delay seems to be attended with some advantages. And first, since the Church must take particular care that none approach this sacrament through hypocrisy and dissimulation, the intentions of such as seek baptism are better examined and ascertained. So this is one example that the Council Catechism gives about the, the advisability of waiting for a time. Because the individual who declares himself uh, to have faith enough that he intends to be baptized, even if he dies without the sacrament of baptism, his intention to receive it and his repentance for his sins will avail him unto grace and righteousness. That's the translation, which I believe is quite accurate. Now, my dear faithful, the, the Catechism of the Council of Trent as a, a fruit of the work of the entire council, expresses the council's faith. And uh, the brothers Grimm uh, reject it. They reject it because they say that it is not infallible. I'm sorry, but it certainly is infallible. It is the expression of the dogmatic decrees of the Council of Trent. It is a, uh, a work of the of the ordinary magisterium of the Catholic Church teaching in her teaching office throughout the entire world, and that is infallible. That is guarded with the charism of infallibility. It is out of their ignorance they dispute this about the Council of Trent. It is, in fact, infallibly proclaimed, and it does infallibly represent the Catholic faith. Uh, I consider it to be a small thing to be insulted by them. I really consider it an insult. Uh, because I consider it to be negligible, but I do consider it to be insulting to the Church for them to simply be able to dismiss the Catechism of the Council of Trent to so, so blithely explain away so many of the Church's documents that they find um, uh, contrary to their own understanding or misunderstanding of things. Uh, they are like Protestants. They really are Protestants because they see no difficulty with just dismissing whatever is in the church's tradition that doesn't agree with them and absolutizing the few things that they can interpret 
to support their position, like Protestants approach the Bible. Protestants approach sacred scripture the same way. Rather than harmonizing everything in sacred scripture, because it is indeed the word of God and God does not contradict himself, Protestants will absolutize a statement from the Bible and ignore whatever shows that their interpretation is not correct. This is the way they proceed. An example of this would be a Protestant arguing that Catholics are wrong in calling priests father because Jesus Christ says in St. Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 23, call no man on earth your father. And um, so they, they then raise that one statement to an absolute that uh, attacks the idea of the Catholic Church calling its priest father. Of course, they have to ignore the rest of sacred scripture. They have to ignore the fact that Almighty God himself gave us the commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. They have to also ignore the fact that Jesus Christ himself often referred to fathers and mothers and earthly fathers and earthly mothers in the Gospels himself. And so what they do is they take completely out of context a statement of our Lord, absolutize it, and then use it as a weapon. And this is exactly what these Brothers Grimm do. They actually function very much like Protestants in their so-called apologetic, for which they should be, in fact, very much apologetic, and they should apologize for it. Now, one of the things that they take out of context is a statement by Pope Eugene the Fourth. But this is so worded and so translated that even traditional Catholics who know better, who know that there is such a thing as baptism of desire as defined by the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Now, there are a lot of false ideas about baptism of desire, and we don't allow a common, uh, let's say, the, the common man on the street, we don't allow um, rumor and hearsay and spec idle speculation to define for us what baptism of desire means. We don't allow the liberals to define it for us. <clears throat> we go to the church yourself in the Catechism of the Council of Trent. It tells us exactly what it means, that one who has the intention to receive the sacrament of baptism dies without it. But that intention to receive and his sorrow and contrition, true contrition for his sin, will avail him of grace and justification, as it's translated in some cases, righteousness in others. That is baptism of desire. And um, that is what we say is, is a true Catholic teaching. Now, if you turn to Eugene IV's statement in Cantate Domino, you might read this and come away thinking, well, I don't know, that seems awfully strong, contrary to the idea of baptism of desire. But you might think that way because of what you read and how you interpret it, or you might think that way because you've been told how to misinterpret it by those who want to twist it to serve their own purposes. But let's take a look at that. I find that this is the go-to phrase, this is the go-to statement that all of the, the Phineites and the anti-baptism the anti of desire people, people go to in order to play like a trump card against the idea of baptism of desire. And so I think it's important to understand exactly what Eugene IV meant and exactly what he didn't mean. So this is from his 19, uh, I'm sorry, 1442, February 1442, 
decree cantate domino. And uh, this decree of February 4th, 1442, was actually um, a bull of union with the uh, Ethiopian, Ethiopian Copts, okay? And uh, the, uh, the statement itself is very bold, very straightforward, a statement of faith. And uh, this is the, the concluding, well, one of the concluding phrases, one of them. The church, it firmly believes, professes, and proclaims that those not living within the Catholic Church, not only pagans, but also Jews and heretics and schismatics, cannot become participants in eternal life, but will depart into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's from St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, verse 41. Unless before the end of life the same have been added to the flock, and that the unity of the ecclesiastical body is so strong that only to those remaining in it are the sacraments of the Church of benefit for salvation. And do fastings, almsgivings, and other functions of piety and exercises of Christian service produce eternal reward? And that no one, whatever almsgiving he has practiced, even if he has shed blood for the, same, the name of Christ, can be saved, unless he has remained in the bosom and unity of the Catholic Church. Now, that is the English translation. We always have to recall that we're dealing with translations. And uh, when we go back to the original language of the Church, in the decrees of this particular Council of Florence, we have uh, decrees issued not only in Latin, but in Greek and also Coptic and so on, other languages. But in the Latin, it is a bit instructive. Firmita credit profitator et predica nullus extra ecclesiam catholicam existentes, non solum paganos, sed nec judeos ad hereticos aut schismaticos, etene vitae fieri posse participas, sed in inium etenum ituros, qui paratus est diabolo et angeli sevus. Nisi ante finem vitae, e idem fuerent aggregati, tantum quae valere ecclesiastici corporis unitatem, ut solis in ea manentibus ad salutem ecclesiastica sacramenta provician et eunia, eremosina, ad cetera pietatis, ovicia et exercitia, miliciae christiane premia etana parturiant, nemerem quae quantas cumque eleemosinas fecerit, et si pro Christi nomine sanguinem efuderit, posse salvari nisi in catholice ecclesiae gremio ereditate permanserit. I'm sorry, some, there are some letters left out, uh, some typos in the Latin too. But uh, someone pointed out to me, in looking at this, well, look at the words, unless he remain. I mean, look, the, the Council of Florence was a Council of Union, and the Council of Union had to do with getting schismatics, those who, whose ancestors had, ancestors had historically been members of the Catholic Church, but had gone into schism with the Greek schism in 1054, that this is the ones we're addressing in this encyclical, or rather in this bowl of Pope 
uh, Eugene IV. So we're actually talking to those whose ancestors had been in the faith, but gone into schism. So they pointed out this. They said, look, in the, in the, in the English and in the Latin, they use the word remain, remain, that it was necessary to remain in the church. And so they were trying to make the argument, and I uh, was inclined to see their point, actually, at the time, that, for example, when this, this statement ends with the word permanserit, unless he shall have remained, it's future perfect, unless he shall have remained in the church, he absolutely cannot be saved or benefit from whatever acts of piety he does, even if he were to lay down his life as a martyr. So this involves people who had been in the church and who had left the church, theoretically. That was the argument, okay? And uh, also, it, it, the, the, the word manentibus, what solely sinea manentibus, and only those remaining in the church. Again, the implication could be that this refers to schismatics in particular, because this refers to those who had at one time been in the church and left the church. And uh, which would imply that we're talking about people who had been members of the church and made an active decision to leave the church, okay? So one could make the argument, well, clearly, we have to say that those who are members of the church and leave the church deliberately, willingly, they made their choice to go out of the church, and so obviously they can't be saved if they have willingly and knowingly and deliberately and wantonly uh, abandoned the true church. And so they're trying to say, well, this would not necessarily apply to others outside of the schism who might not know that the Catholic Church is the true church. This applies to those who knew the church was the true church and abandoned it anyway. So this would not, they say, be an argument against baptism of desire. But to them, I would say, well, there's a little more to it than that, of course, because remember, the decree begins with uh, that those not living within the church, and the decree says not only pagans, but also Jews, heretics, and schismatics. So it names all of them, not just the schismatics, not just those who were members of the church at one point, and then deliberately rejected her and positively abandoned her, left her, uh, no, it refers to all of them. And uh, so the argument about the, the significance of the words uh, not applying to those who never were members of the church, as though this decree does not address them, that, I think that is a, a, actually a very weak argument. I would say this, though, concerning this decree of uh, Pope Eugene IV, though. It, it actually addresses not so much the question of baptism desire, it addresses the question of whether baptism desire, it, it, actually, it, it, this, this decree addresses the question of whether it's possible to be saved outside the Catholic Church. And it gives the answer, no, absolutely not. It is not possible to be saved outside the Catholic Church, and that's true. Um, Pope Boniface VIII, 1302, Unam Sanctum, specified it's a matter of if divine and Catholic faith is dogmatically a fact, it is absolutely impossible 
for any human creature to be saved who is not subject to the Roman pontiff, is what he said. And, uh, of course, people are trying to use that against traditional Catholics now, especially those who question whether Francis is a true pope. They're trying to use that argument against us now. But, again, I think falsely so. Because you can't be a schismatic for rejecting someone you don't really believe is the pope, especially if you have some serious arguments, and they themselves have given you the arguments. Let's say the scandals created by a Francis have actually created the doubt, or give reason, given reason for the doubt, one cannot accuse of being schismatic someone who questions his papacy. Um, and I'll explain that in, in just a minute, too, to explain exactly why I, mean, why I say that. Um, but this statement of Pope Eugene the, the does not say anything about baptism, does not say anything for or against baptism of desire. For anyone to use it as though, you know, or abuse it as a, some kind of a statement that is against baptism of desire is an abuse. All it's saying is just repeating the Catholic dogma, the dogma of faith that it is impossible to be saved outside the Catholic faith. Now, we Catholics believe that, absolutely, because we believe that the Catholic faith is the faith that was taught to us by the one true Son of the one true God. It is the one true faith. It is impossible to be saved outside the church that was founded by Christ because Christ himself is the only Savior. And to say that one can be saved without his church is the same as saying that we can, we can be saved without him, without Christ, the Savior, which is a heresy. It's impossible for anyone to be saved without the only Savior and Redeemer there is, Jesus Christ. It is impossible for anyone to be saved outside of his church. The question here is not that. The question is, does baptism of desire, does it actually avail the soul to God's sanctifying grace? If it avails the soul unto sanctifying grace, it avails the soul to a belong to the church. And somehow the, the one, a soul in the state of sanctifying grace must belong to the church. To say that a soul can be in sanctifying grace without any connection to the Catholic Church is an denial of the dogma that one can be saved, cannot be saved outside the Church. Because the Church herself teaches us that if one dies in the state of sanctifying grace, that person has saved his soul. He's died with the virtues of faith and hope and charity, the love for God in his soul, and he has saved his soul. That's the meaning of sanctifying grace. He has the divine life in his soul. If we were to say that, apparently, as Father Feeney did in The Bread of Life at one point, that a soul can be put in the state of sanctifying grace by the power of baptism of desire and will not go to heaven, that is a heresy against the very meaning of sanctifying grace. But not only that, if we say that a soul can be put in the state of sanctifying grace by the baptism of desire and go to heaven, but not have any connection with the church that Christ established here on earth, that also is a heresy against the dogma of the necessity of the church for salvation. It is tantamount to saying that one doesn't have to be a member of Christ of, of Christ's church to be a member of Christ. As though one can find sanctifying grace outside the church, without the church. And that is a heresy. The only alternative is that if a soul can be put in the state of sanctifying grace, if God can give a soul the, the state of sanctifying grace here on earth, 
then that soul must somehow be incorporated into our Lord Jesus Christ in his own divine life. But that soul must also somehow be incorporated into the church as well. You can't have him incorporated with Christ or be a member of Christ without being a member of the church. It's impossible. And you can't have him being a member of the church also, unless somehow, at least by faith, he has a true faith, he has a connection with our Lord. He might, as a member of the church, be baptized, have faith and hope, but not charity because of mortal sin. But he still has some connection with our Lord Jesus Christ, even though he's in the state of mortal sin, even though he's not in the state of grace. Now, the point of of, all this comes down to is finally to try to understand what the church really means by baptism of desire. How are we to understand the statement of Eugene IV, Boniface VIII, about the necessity of belonging to the church to salvation? Well, one does not have to be in the state of sanctifying grace to belong to the church. That's true. One has to have the virtue of faith, one has to have the virtue of hope, one has to have the virtue of charity, one must have uh, the virtue, uh, these virtues in the soul uh, in order to be saved, in order to get to heaven. There's no doubt about it. In order to be in the state of sanctifying grace. Uh, it's, it's kind of ironic to even be talking in these terms that you can have somebody who is baptized in the Catholic Church, who is a member of the Catholic Church, still has faith, still has hope, but does not have charity, is not in the state of sanctifying grace, and yet he's still a member of the Church, a dead member of the Church, and somehow incorporated to Christ, even as a dead member, because of the lack of sanctifying grace in the soul. But if we believe in the baptism of desire, that would say that someone who has not been baptized as a Catholic could actually be in the state of sanctifying grace by the power of God, could have the virtues not the virtues of faith and of hope and even charity in the soul, that God could do this to him. And that person must also be incorporated into the church in some way so that he can be in the state of sanctifying grace. Without that connection to the church, as I say, it would be impossible to be in the state of sanctifying grace. So the question about baptism of desire really comes down to, can one be in the state of sanctifying grace without having a baptized Catholic? Can one have the virtues of faith and open charity in the soul without having been baptized into the Catholic Church? The Church in the past has said yes. In fact, Pope Pius IX did issue a very strong statement about baptism, uh, about invincible ignorance, which is what prevents somebody from from entering the church because he doesn't know, he doesn't know, he doesn't understand that the Catholic Church is the true church. If that was a problem back in the 1800s, imagine what that problem is now with Francis at the helm there in the Vatican, telling everybody that what he represents is Catholicism. Imagine the the, uh, invincible ignorance out there in the minds of poor people who actually may reject what they consider the Catholic Church because they actually believe what the Church teaches and they don't see that being taught. They don't even see that that's the Catholic Church teaching. I was talking to a young man today who was reading through the Catechism. He was raised as a Protestant and he said, you know, Father, I believe things in the Catechism that are not actually taught by the Protestant churches I went to, but I believed them even though the Protestant churches I went to did not profess these beliefs. 
I thought that was very interesting, that he already had faith in Catholic teachings that he did not know were Catholic teachings. <clears throat> but he knew they were not the teachings of the Protestant sects he went to, and he did not accept those false teachings from the Protestant religions. So he was very surprised to find the teachings that he believed are actually in the Catholic faith and in the Catholic Catechism. He just didn't know. He'd never been introduced to it before. Is it possible? It's not impossible. It's a fact. I was talking to the fellow this morning, and I know for a fact that it is a fact. When people show up at the door and say they want to convert, their intention is to be baptized, they already have faith. They have enough faith to come and say, I believe the Catholic faith is the true faith. And it's not just a natural faith. It's actually a supernatural virtue of faith in their souls, that brings them to the baptismal font in the first place. Without that presence of that virtue in the soul, they would not come to the baptismal font to begin with. That is what brings them to the baptismal font. And so, as I mentioned to our hopeful convert uh, this morning, the Catholic Church has never taught that outside the Church, God gives no grace. The Catholic Church, in fact, has condemned that proposition. Those who are teaching that outside the Catholic Church, God gives no grace to anyone. The Church has condemned that as a heresy. And you might think for a minute, well, of course, it has to be a heresy, because if those outside the Catholic Church didn't receive grace, how could anybody ever convert to the Catholic faith? Obviously, there has to be grace to bring them to conversion to the Catholic faith. And millions upon millions have converted to the faith <coughs> from paganism, and uh, and then from Protestantism and all manner of isms, but they have come to the Catholic faith because they received the actual graces to draw them. So the actual graces God gives, but the question is different here with baptism of desire. The question is not whether God gives actual graces to others who are not Catholics to bring them to the true faith to bring them to the Catholic faith. The question is God, whether God can give them sanctifying grace. The, the, the state of sanctifying grace which makes one a child of God and an heir of heaven, makes the soul holy and pleasing to God by virtue of the, the supernatural virtues of faith and hope and charity in the soul. That's the question. Now, um, without pretending to fully answer that question here, I will just say this. The Catholic Church has acknowledged that, yes, God can give those graces too. God can give the grace of faith, the virtue of faith. God can give the grace of hope, the virtue of hope. God can give the grace of charity, the virtue of charity to a soul, which would even lead that soul to desire to be baptized, to be faithful to Christ. God can give that grace. We might even say, when someone approaches the baptismal thought, we have to presume that God is giving those graces of those virtues to the soul in order to, uh, at least to the extent that he's moving them to seek there at the baptismal font uh, the will of God and to... Um, to enter into uh, the, the, the life of God. It is by the virtue of the baptismal sacrament, of course, that the faith and the hope that the person brings then 
is to be also receive charity, which is the divine life. It is by virtue of the baptismal font and the sacrament of baptism that the divine life is given to the soul in the virtue of charity. That's a fact. We know that. Uh, the question has to do with those who want to receive the sacrament of baptism, place their hope in Christ, and intend to be baptized, and for whatever reason are not. The Code of Canon Law that came out, that was worked on throughout the reign of St. Pius X, and was finally published in 1918 under the name of Benedict XV, specifically allows for that. It says if a catechumen dies having, through no fault of his own, not yet been baptized, he must be given Catholic burial. He is considered a member of the Church and given Catholic burial. And for then you realize the strictness of the Church as to who she is willing to bury and the reasons that would exclude someone from receiving Catholic burial, you realize that for the Church to grant that, to grant that to someone who was not actually baptized sacramentally, but had expressed his intention to be baptized, that the Church would consider him Catholic to the extent of even giving him the rites and the ceremonies of Catholic burial. That's a very significant statement by the Church. And the Code of Canon Law is a secondary object of the Church's infallibility. So again, going back to the Brothers Grimm, who would just dismiss that because it doesn't support their erroneous belief and their misunderstanding, they are dismissing something that actually has the character of infallibility in the Church. So we have to understand the, the role, if I, if I may somewhat return to Pope Eugene the Fourth statement. Uh, and, and again, uh, I say somewhat because I, I don't intend to analyze that phrase by phrase, line by line. But I think we have to be very clear on something. And that is this. The Church herself acknowledges that people can be in error. They can actually be in honest error about matters of faith. There was a Pope, John XXII, who himself was in error about faith. He believed that the souls of the just who died in the state of God's grace would not enter eternal life, heaven, until after the general judgment at the end of the world. He was strongly denounced, even stridently denounced by the Franciscans of his day. Uh, and in fact, he recanted his position before he died. On his deathbed, he, he agreed that the saints, those who die here on earth in the state of sanctifying grace, do not wait till the general judgment at the end of the world to enter heaven, but they enter heaven uh, at, the, at the particular judgment, when they themselves individually go at their deaths before judgment to our Lord. But the Church still regarded him and regards him historically as a Pope, an honest-to-goodness bona fide Roman Catholic Pope, even during that time that he personally mistakenly held that error. He never promulgated it, he never taught it as a matter of, uh, let's say, magisterium. He never, he never professed it as a matter of uh, divine and Catholic faith. It was his own personal theological view. The Church did not consider him to be disqualified either as a Catholic or as a Roman pontiff because of his, his error. 
because his error was not formal. In other words, if someone knowingly and deliberately denies a dogma of faith, a doctrine of the Catholic faith, then he, he would be a heretic, okay? If someone knowingly and, uh, what is it, the word, uh, pertinaciously denies a teaching of the Catholic Church, which is we are bound to accept as true by an obligation, define divine and Catholic faith, defined dogma, that that person is a heretic, but he's pertinacious. Someone can actually believe what is a heresy, but he can be mistaken. And the Church has always made that distinction between being what they call a material heretic, who believes in error against the faith unwittingly, unknowingly, ignorantly, and someone who knows the Catholic Church teaches this doctrine, and he will not accept it. And he teaches something contrary to it. If you look through the decrees, let's say, of the Council of Trent, the canons and decrees of the Council of Trent, you'll find the anathemas there. If anyone should pertinaciously, if anyone should uphold, uh, it, it states the Catholic faith and says if anybody should deny this, if anybody should contradict this, and so on, and it always refers to someone <coughs> who knows this is the Catholic church's, church's teaching, church's teaching, and I deny this. So the consequences, and even the state of the soul, so in other words, the consequences have to do with the external forum, that is, the, the legal consequences of holding heresy. But also the internal forum, a matter of conscience, a person who uh, holds to a heresy, it matters a great deal. There's a huge difference between whether that person is formal or material, whether he is knowingly, willingly, deliberately, pertinaciously uh, holding and teaching heresy, or whether he's just ignorant and mistaken, yet he doesn't understand the Church has made allowances for that all through her history. And one of the great examples of that, actually, is the Great Western Schism. When you had, uh, finally, after the Babylonian exile of the Church, you had, at the instance of St. Catherine of Siena, the Pope returned to Rome, die, and then Urban VI elected a Pope, then the, the cardinal, the French cardinals who elected him didn't like him, so they went back to Avignon and they elected another one and proclaimed him the Pope. And then there were the two of them, and this went on for years until there were efforts made to resolve the issue by getting Avignon and Rome to resign. And in Pisa they would elect one, and then everyone would accept him as the one true Pope. Well, of course, they elected a Pope quote-unquote, in Pisa, John, I think his name was, uh, they had, was it um, Gregory in Avignon, they had uh, Benedict, was it, and, and I forget at that point how it finally wound up, but the point was nobody resigned. So then they had a real problem. Uh, it was resolved by the grace of God, and Pope Martin V, who was a great pope, was elected. By the grace of God, this whole mess was resolved, but only by the grace of God. It couldn't be solved by men. Every initiative that human beings took seemed to just make it worse. It really had to be the result of prayer, sacrifice, and God giving the grace to resolve what otherwise seemed to be insoluble. But to God, it's not insoluble. But the point is, the church judges, how the church judged these people who were living during that time. 
And as I mentioned to you before, and as many of you already know, but regardless of what I've said to you, uh, we had great saints. We had saints on both sides of the issue. King St. Catherine of Siena recognized uh, the true successors of St. Peter in Rome. But uh, St. Vincent Ferrer, who is a, a great saint of the church, there's a feast day of St. Vincent Ferrer to this day in the calendar of the church. He was known as the saint of the latter days because of the <coughs> atrocities going on uh, during his time in the 14th century. And yet he was following a non-pope. He, he rejected, explicitly rejected the, the true pope who was in Rome, and he was following a false pope in Avignon. But the church would not regard St. Vincent Ferrer as a schismatic, nor even those who were following John in Pisa later on. They never called them schismatics. And if you go back to the history of the list of popes uh, of this time, you won't find them calling the man in Avignon who was regarded as a pope. They don't call him an anti-pope, and they don't call the man elected in Pisa an anti-pope. Because of the confusion of the time, the church just gave everybody the benefit of that confusion. And uh, when the church can't assume goodwill, she does. And she just understood, as a real mother would, that people were very, very confused. I mean, after all, if you have cardinals elect a pope in Rome, and then a, 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 a large contingent of them go off to, to Avignon and say, well, that election didn't count. Now we're having the real election, and the same cardinals that voted in Rome are going to be voting in Avignon, and they're going to elect a man, the pope. How can one help but be confused? Except um, by some special dispensation of God guiding them. They were very confusing times. But the church did not label these people schismatics, even though materially they were following a non-pope and they were actually rejecting someone who really was the pope and the vicar of Christ on earth. Notice that all during that time, they didn't change the faith. They didn't change the mass. They didn't change the sacraments. They didn't change the religion. Far different from today, with the confusion of the day. This is much, much worse than even that great Western schism back then in the 14th century. But in any case, um, those men back there were Catholics. They weren't modernists. Here we have modernists who have formally rejected the Catholic faith and decided to replace the church with a monster of their own construction and an anti-faith, which we know as modernism and its so-called creed, anti-creed. In any case, um, bringing all things to this day, but if we're going to be talking about invincible ignorance, we certainly have to appreciate the significance of the confusion of the day. Uh, there are people out there who... Uh, uh, would have a hard time finding their way to the true Catholic faith right now, from Protestantism, from Buddhism, from atheism, wherever they're coming from. They'd have a hard time finding their way because what appears to them to be the Catholic faith is not. And uh, what prances around them boldly before the world as the Catholic faith is not. And the buffoonery that passes for uh, the papacy right now is not. It makes a mockery of the Catholic faith, of the church, the papacy, and all the rest of Christ, what Christ actually did, what our Lord has bequeathed to us from the cross. So if one rejects the 
the evils being professed by the modernist church and thinks that he's rejecting Catholicism. He's mistaken. And he may actually be rejecting the buffoonery and the modernism of the Novus Ordo, the New Order Church of Francis, because he actually believes in what the Catholic Church teaches, but he doesn't know that that's what the Catholic Church teaches. Because his ministers have deceived him, and Francis is deceiving him too. How many converts do I find have been misled when we sit down at the table and explain what the Catholic Church teaches, how surprised they are to find out what the Catholic Church really teaches. What they've been going on is just accepting what the ministers have told them the Church teaches, and it is nothing but a caricature of Catholic teaching. So, there are people out there who really, I, I do believe, have the virtue of faith. I see them and deal with them in their conversion to the Catholic faith. And how eagerly they, they take the doctrines of the faith because the virtue of faith is already in the soul. It is that that will lead them to the baptismal font. Can God bring a soul like that into the state of grace before or even without the waters of baptism? Yes, God can. The church has said that is possible. That is what we know as baptism of desire. But it is defined by the Catechism of the Council of Trent as not just some vague notion of, well, I want to be faithful to God, whoever or whatever he is. No, no, no. That's not baptism of desire. That's not faith. Here we're talking specifically and very, very particularly about a case where an individual has discovered that the Catholic faith is the true faith, and the Catholic Church is the true church, and he intends to be baptized, received into the church, and become a member of the Catholic Church. But for whatever reason, he does not live to receive the sacrament of baptism. And there the church teaches very, very clearly in her magisterium, in her certainly ordinary magisterium, which is infallible, that someone in that condition, an adult who has that intention and has the true contrition for his sins, will find from God grace and righteousness or justification, both, both justification and his grace. So I hope this helps somewhat. I hope it wasn't a little bit even more confusing. I'd like you to write and tell me whether this was helpful or not. If it was confusing, I need you to tell me why. And if I can, I'll try to uh, remove the confusion. Um, but in any case, I did want to address that matter of Eugene the Fourth's statement and just point out that it is being represented and misrepresented very often as an argument against baptism of desire. It is not. It is simply a restatement of the Church's teaching that outside the Church there is no salvation. The question here, rather, is whether baptism of desire can give one a connection to the Church, make one actually belong to the Church in some way by the grace of God, such that one can be in the state of sanctifying grace. The answer of the Catholic Church throughout the centuries has been, the answer to that question has been, yes, it can. There is such a thing as baptism of desire. God bless you.